one in the congregation like we've been doing um, for the past several months um, to help save his voice a little bit. So I'm going to count down three, two, one, and then we're going to read um, the scripture together. And it should be, yep, back here on the wall. So this is Ecclesiastes 3 and 7 and 8. Um, three, two, one. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen evil deeds that are done under the sun. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who has perished in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of the life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business of what is done on earth, how neither day nor night sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, 
he will not find out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find out. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks for reading that. Uh, I have a bad cough that I've had for the last week and a half, and um, I am heavily medicated and not contagious, but I do sound like a barking seal. And uh, so if that happens, you don't need to call the authorities. Just bear with me for a sec, but pray that I'm okay through this. Let's pray together as we open God's Word. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing, acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our fortress and our redeemer. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen. Now, do you know the story by Hans Christian Andersen called The Emperor's New Clothes? Anybody familiar with this? Kind of a staple of elementary school literature. And it's the story of a very vain emperor and his equally prideful court. And one day, two weavers show up at court and they promise that they can make the king the most amazing, luxurious robes that anybody has seen. But there's a catch. Only those who are wise and fit for office can see the robes. And so the robes can show off those, can show those who are unfit for office or, or stupid or unwise. And the king loves this twist. And so immediately he commissions the, the weavers and they pull out their looms and they begin to pretend to weave. And the shuttlecock goes back and forth and they work and people keep looking in on them, but no one says, I don't see anything for a fear of course, that they're going to be shown to be thought of as stupid or naive or incompetent for office. So the time comes when the emperor is to parade before the subjects in his new clothes. And, of course, no one dares to say that they don't see the robes, including the emperor himself, because he doesn't want to be judged as unfit or incompetent for office. But finally, as he is walking down the street naked, a child pipes up and says the truth that everyone else was too afraid to say. But he isn't wearing anything at all. Now, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is just like that. The teacher here says what I think maybe we are too polite to say in church or in a community group setting, that it's really hard sometimes to believe in God. That sometimes... Doesn't it appear that God is absent? Sometimes it seems like God doesn't care. Sometimes it feels like God is even unjust. And while you, know, you and I, we're nice people, we wouldn't say that out loud. Who hasn't said those things under their breath? Who hasn't wondered those things? But the good news of Ecclesiastes is that we don't need to play pretend. One of the most um, helpful writers today for me is Carolyn Custis James. And she says this, When my personal world is falling apart and something or someone precious is at stake, it is frightening when God doesn't show up to hold things together, especially when I'm begging Him to come. Christians are great pretenders. And then she goes on to say this, we tell ourselves it's not supposed to be this way for Christians. So we resort to a cover-up. But God won't and doesn't participate in this kind of masquerade. I love that. Let me say that again. 
God won't and doesn't participate in this kind of masquerade. See, the teacher in Ecclesiastes is saying the things like the child that are obvious to everyone and yet we can't say out loud because we're too embarrassed to admit. And yet these words are right here in the Bible, in the inspired by the Holy Spirit, inerrant Word of God. So I just I want to underscore that to you. These are, um, this is not the words of some cynic, or this is not the words of a deconversion story, or someone who's just trying to tear down people's faith. This is a teacher. Uh, the teacher is taking us somewhere. He, he is teaching. And yet he says out loud what many of us find hard to say, that sometimes it is really hard to believe in God. Sometimes it is really hard for us to believe. So today, um, if you take notes, really only two points today's sermon. First, why it's hard to be a sheep. And second, why it's good to be a sheep. Why, why it's hard to believe in God. Why is it hard to be a sheep? So in Ecclesiastes, the teacher is sort of taking us on this grand tour of faith-challenging observations, of all those situations that you and I walk into that make it really hard for us to believe in God. So I'm going to walk back through all these passages we read. And Ecclesiastes, I'll just say this, is kind of, um, it, it jumps around. So I've just sort of pieced together a bunch of these, that, uh, and we're going to look through them in all these things. So why, why is it hard to believe in God? Let's look at this together. First, look at three, um, chapter 3, verse 19. You're going to need to pull out your bulletin for this. Okay, can you pull it out? Find, this, find these sections. So this one, 3, 18 through 22, I'm going to title this one like, All Die the Same. Listen, listen to what the teacher says, the Kohelet in Hebrew. What happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. They all go, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. I mean, these are hard words. But who hasn't felt this? Like, death comes to everybody and everything. You know, the, the goldfish you get at the state fair that barely lasts the car ride home and your beloved grandmother. I mean, who hasn't been at a funeral? You're like, this doesn't make any sense. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, this is particularly true with regard to a death of a child. If you've been to a funeral of a child, and bless you if you have lost a child. This is so hard. Nothing, maybe, maybe nothing makes us question more than the, the death of a child. Like, where is God and what is God up to? One of my friends says it this way, the smallest coffins, coffins, the smallest coffins are often the heaviest ones. You know, consider um, our friend Ashley. Six years ago, our friend Ashley was traveling with her family en route from Minneapolis to Pasadena, California. Ashley and her husband, Jewel, were part of our congregation in Philadelphia. For many years, uh, while Jewel was doing his medical residency in downtown Philly, um, I baptized their two little girls. They were good friends of ours. Um, together, Jewel and Ashley led a really terrific community group in South Philly. Um, they were incredible people, and after they finished up residency, they moved to Minneapolis for a one-year fellowship for him before he was going to start practicing as a doctor. So they had just finished up, and they'd packed up the car, and they were going to drive out to Pasadena and finally start his first 
role as a surgeon and live right down the road from her family. And as they're driving, the tire blew. The rear tire blew. And the car flipped five times. And Jewel, who was driving, he was kind of banged up. And the two girls in the back seat, they were untouched. But Ashley and the baby she was carrying didn't make it. And my wife and I flew out to California to do this funeral. And, you know, throughout the funeral, what was in everybody's mind is just why? Lord, why? This is a great woman. Her little girls need her. They were finally going to arrive. Why? How does this make sense? Look at the second here. Um, Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to title this one, Justice is either slow or never. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power and no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still, still alive. But better than both is, one, is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. I mean, James went over these words last week, so I'm not going to belabor this one a lot. But do you hear the teacher's frustration? Justice seems like it's late or never. I mean, aren't you tired? Aren't you sort of weary from the news cycle? Aren't you so sick of shootings? Aren't you sick of corporate greed that doesn't seem to matter? Aren't you tired of trafficking? I mean, come on, anybody here? I'm the only one that's weary of this stuff. You know, this past week, let me just say the name, Atiana Jefferson. Senseless death. So tired of senseless death. You know, I watch the news, and it's just, it's wearisome. I mean, do you realize, you know, there was a time we were doing a lot of pastoral prayers on Sundays, and we would pray for things that would come up in the media. And do you know what? We, it's hard to do. We could do a pastoral prayer every week on injustice. I mean, the news cycle right now is just washing over us. And the, the net impact is that it's hard to feel all that all the time. I, I think that sometimes it makes us even kind of numb because you hear of this all the time. And it, doesn't it make you go like, God, I'm tired of seeing and hearing. What about you? Are you seeing and hearing this? It's so wearisome. You know, God, it seems like justice is late or never. Third, look at... Um, 7.13 here. I'm titled this one, God Doesn't Make Any Sense. It says, uh, the teacher writes, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? It doesn't seem like God's ways make sense to us. You know, a couple years ago, uh, a movie by Martin Scorsese and, and then the book before that by uh, Shisaku Indo, Indo um, called Silence came out. And this one was a real, it really touched a nerve. And if you, if you aren't familiar, it's a story of the 17th century missions of um, some Western missionaries to Japan to bring the gospel to Japan. And when the missionaries show up, on, so Jesuit missionaries show up on the shore, they find that there is a small, struggling Christian community there. And because of fear of the government, the, the little Christian community there hides the missionaries but soon the government hears that there are these missionaries that are doing work here, and they round up people who are part of this little Japanese Christian community, and they give them a chance to, walk, to abandon their faith. 
say, apostatize or die. And the big kind of um, most powerful image from silence is the picture of four crosses out in the sand, four of the lay leaders of that little church who were tied to these crosses in the tide and drowned to death by the, the Japanese government. And the missionaries are in hiding, and they know what's going on, and they struggle very much like, where is God? And the title says everything, silence. Because it's like, why is God silent right now? Why is God not doing something or saying something? God seems to be absent. God seems to even not even notice. I mean, does anybody feel this? Um, we'll get uh, next section, 7.15 and then 8, 10 through 11. I'm going to call this one No Karma. Uh, in my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against the evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. You know, karma is kind of a popular term right now. It actually comes from uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, and the kind of pop notion of this is, you've heard this, like, you do something bad, something bad has to happen to you, kind of even it out. Sort of, it's kind of the even out philosophy. Like, you do something good, something good will happen to you. You do something bad, something bad will happen to you. That's fate or karma. And um, the idea is the good people should get good, the bad people should get bad. But listen what the teacher says. No karma. Look, 8.11, because the sentence against the evil deed is not executed speedily, because the heart of children of man is fully set to do evil. Like, just getting more evil and more wicked. And, and one thing, this is for free. We'll time out. This is not part of the sermon. Do we really want karma? You know, it, it, karma sounds good when you're on the nice list. Like, when you're on the nice list and things are going well, you've been doing good things, we're like, yeah, this should be karma for the bad people. But I'm on the naughty list a lot. I'm a sinner. And I, for one, am really glad there's not karma. I'm really glad that there's God's patience and forgiveness and kindness towards sinners. So even though we think we really want that, it's always from the perspective of people who think they're really good. Um, next, uh, 8.14. Let me title this one. It doesn't really matter how you live. Um, therefore, it's a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the right, righteous. Now, this is kind of a version of karma. Um, but don't we want to believe that this is true when all the evidence says opposite? You know, when the tornadoes come and hit the trailer park, they don't hit just the homes of the bad people. They hit all the homes. Uh, dementia, uh, car crashes are pretty undiscerning in the type of people that they take out. You may know of the Christian writer and speaker and activist Johnny Erickson Tata. You may have heard that name. So Johnny has spent over 50 years in a wheelchair, and uh, it's all due to a diving accident that she had as a teenager where she dove into uh, a too shallow pool of water and broke her neck and has been a quadriplegic since then, been in a 
a wheelchair 52 years. She's one of the longest people on record to have been a quadriplegic that long. And, and yet, okay, this is a woman who's done so much amazing stuff, hands out wheelchairs all over the world, speaks publicly, encourages all kinds of people in their faith. I mean, just prolific writer and speaker. And yet in 2011, she was diagnosed, diagnosed with cancer. And she's, she's being interviewed uh, right after starting chemo. And this is what she says. It is really hard to go on. I mean, privately, I've wondered, gee, Lord, um, is this cancer my ticket to heaven? Because I sure am tired of sitting in a wheelchair, and my body is aching, and I'm so weary. You know, you, you listen to that, and you're like, God, Johnny, really? I mean, like, this woman is doing so much. I have a long list of people I would love for you to zap with cancer. But Johnny is not on that list. This is a good person. This is a person who does all kinds of wonderful things for you. For you. And it, does it matter how you live if this is what happens? I mean, does anybody wrestle with this? Or what about this one? Uh, finally, um, last verse here, 817, the incomprehensibility of God. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much a man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. See, finally the teacher asks the question. I mean, who can know? God's ways are inscrutable. And maybe you don't use that word very much, but incomprehensible. God doesn't make sense. John Calvin, um, the French theologian, said it this way, the finite cannot grasp or contain the infinite. In other words, like our brains, we, don't, we just can't, we don't understand what God's doing. Even God's ways, what God is like sometimes. Like what, what is he doing? Um, and here's, here's something, though. If we could, um, this is, if, if we had a God we could fully comprehend, this is what the African church father Augustine says, um, it would be an indication that we probably weren't thinking about the real God. We were probably thinking about a God of our own making. Let me put it this way, and I'm going to cite a different Calvin, Calvin and Hobbes, okay? So, um, Let's imagine Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes live, it's a comic strip. They live on a page, right? They live in a 2D universe. They live where there are only two kinds of measurements, length and width. You go to Calvin and Hobbes and you try to describe depth to them, and they don't have, a, they don't have an idea for that. There's no way that fits into their worldview because they live on a page, right? Everything is two-dimensional, now, you come to them, and you're a 3D person, and you're trying to describe what life is like in 3D. There's no way they can understand that. It's incomprehensible to them. In the same way, God is like that with us. God is beyond our ability to, to really grasp. I mean, who understands God? You can toil, as the teacher says, but you can't really get it. You can't really understand. That doesn't mean we can't know anything about God, but it means that we have a lot of limitations to this. This is why, incidentally, this is also for free, why those like proofs for God don't really work. Why they don't actually satisfy or add up because they're all 2D to describe a 3D God. That's why they don't work. Now, now look, in some, here's, here's what I want to say. Can you identify, anybody here identify with the teacher? Like, it is hard to be a Christian, isn't it? Isn't it hard to be a sheep? I mean, isn't it sometimes you're like, sometimes God seems unjust, we wouldn't say that out loud. Sometimes it seems like God doesn't care. Sometimes it seems like God is absent. 
I mean, anybody? Can I get a witness, right? Like, this is, this is, it's hard to be a sheep. And some of you are like, wait, why are we doing this this morning? I mean, this is not the sermon you thought you were going to get this morning, right? Is it even productive to have this conversation? Is this even helpful? But look, that's a good question. And while I know this is not the sermon that some of you need this morning, you're like, thanks for the encouraging message, right? Like, we need to hear this. I want to make a couple observations about the teacher. Because the teacher shows us something, or just like pause on this, and think about what the teacher's showing us. Uh, Four things. First, sometimes the most productive exchanges we have with God are in the moments when we are most bewildered by God. Sometimes the, the most productive exchanges, this is throughout the Bible, are when people have been most bewildered by God. Now, like, Look, it's one thing to be one of those people who just like kind of dismisses Christianity straight out. Oh, that's kind of dumb. But if you've actually read the Bible, if you're an honest reader of the Bible, you'll go through and you'll find sections where um, God's people say things like, how long? Psalms, the minor prophets, how long? Have you forgotten us? Like there is bewilderment all over your Bible. You go, go read the lives of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Hannah, Elijah, Job, uh, Naomi. I mean, all these characters, it's like all these people throughout Scripture, completely bewildered by God, don't know what God is, is doing. Now, have you ever been in a movie with a friend who asks questions about the plot throughout the movie? Drives you crazy. You know, like a friend who's like, what is she doing? Who is that? What's going to happen? You're like, shh. You know, I just, we're going to find out. Just shut up. Like, well, I want to watch the rest of the movie, you know. And, and I, I think... The reality is that's us. I mean, that is, that is us all the time. We're in the middle of the movie. We can't see how it's end. We're asking all the plot questions. And we, what we may need to hear is, shh. I mean, it's moments when we're actually the most bewildered that our faith grows the most. I mean, isn't, when things are going well and you're sort of on Christian autopilot, cruise control, You're not motivated to pray or to search the Scriptures or to be with God's people. It's moments when we're most confused, when we're most asking all the plot questions. Those are the moments when actually we search the Scriptures, and we've got to pray, and we need brothers and sisters. Sometimes those are the most productive times. Second observation, sometimes there are no answers. You know, we all want a Jesus bow. There, There are a lot of you who would love a Jesus bow to put on you. You just you're a helper. You want to help people. You want to help people figure out their life. You want to be able to come alongside people, and you just want to be able to put the Jesus bow on things that make it all better. The little band aid that makes it all better. But listen, there's a good word here from the teacher. You can toil and search, and sometimes we just don't know. They're not answers. It doesn't add up. You know. I know what I've noticed about our congregation. We love to at least people. You know what I'm talking about? We love to at least people. You come along someone beside someone who's hurting and you add the little at least phrase. Hey, you know, at least you still have a job. At least, at least you have other kids. Right. Thank you for the groan. Like, hey, at least you got to be married one time. You know, at least you have your church. Do you, do you hear how really radically unhelpful at leasting is? Um, and the truth is, sometimes they're not answers. So can we make an agreement this morning to stop at leasting each other? 
it just really hurts and it doesn't help. Third, sometimes speculation is not helpful. You know what I mean by speculation? You're trying to write the story. You're trying to figure out, you're like, I've got to complete the story arc for God. I've got to make a moral out of the story. Or there's a lesson that I think I need to learn here that God's trying to teach me. Let me figure out the lesson so I learn it, and then we can move on. And, and we're doing that like speculation. But, but remember, you're in the middle of the storyline. You don't know. And, and sometimes like speculation is also radically unhelpful for other people. Coming along and trying to write their story, don't do that. It's not helpful. Listen to the teacher. And finally this, and maybe most important, Look, faith may want answers, but somehow it is able to survive without them. Faith may want answers, but somehow it is able to survive without all the answers. Notice again, this litany of observations, all these like faith stumpers this morning, they are not the first part of deconversion story. They're not coming from a cynic. Or someone who's like, I don't believe in God anymore. In fact, the teacher is taking us to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is all about fear of the Lord. That's where we're going with this. The teacher is taking us somewhere. He's not just stirring up discontent. But look, when we are bewildered by God, again, Carolyn Custis James says it well, it doesn't cause me to doubt God's existence, but it does force me to admit there's a lot about God that I just don't understand. You know, it, as we've noted throughout this series, there is a strong connection. Like when, when I put this series together, it's all based on this. There's a strong connection between the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament and the Gospel of John in the New Testament. Between the teacher here and the rabbi, where the teacher asks all the questions and says all the things like the, the child and the emperor who has no clothes. And Jesus comes along and gives a response. And, and today, even as we've looked at, like, why is it so, it's so hard to be a sheep? And everybody in here would be like, uh-huh. Jesus says to us, it is so good to be a sheep. So I want to direct us to John 10. We'll read a couple passages here. It's on the wall behind me. Listen to what Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them all to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Why is it good to be a sheep? Why is it, as hard as it is, why is it good to be a sheep? Now, remember, the teacher has said back in chapter 318, remember, everybody dies like a beast. The beloved grandmother, the goldfish from the state fair, all die like beasts. And it's like Jesus is playing poker with the teacher. 
He's like, I see your bed, and I up the ante. I, I, I raise you. Because not only do we die like beasts, we actually live like beasts too. In fact, sheep. That's what we live like. We live like sheep. Now, um, a couple things about this. That is an incredible statement, of course, of our vulnerability. Sheep are known for their incredible vulnerability and also for their incredible lack of intelligence. Now, I doubt many of you grew up on a farm. Anybody grew up on a farm in here? Yeah, like two of you or something. Right? You know, so, um, but you know this from having been through art museums. You have never seen like pictures, paintings of settlers arriving on the shores of America to find wild herds of sheep ravaging the hillsides, right? Like, they just don't do that. These are sheep that are incredibly vulnerable. They're animals that have to be taken care of. Um, a sheep is maybe the only creature in the whole animal kingdom that neither celebrates its freedom nor knows how to return back home. So lots of other animals will, like, they get out, they get free, and they go paint the town. It's like party time. We had, we had a black lab named Lucy, and Lucy, was, we called her Houdini. I mean, if you left the gate open for like half a second, that dog would be out of our backyard, hightailing it down to Hillsborough Street to Chipotle to get leftovers from NC State students, like con you out of your leftovers. You're like, so cute, here you go, right? That dog, and we, like all the time, that's always where Lucy was going. And sheep don't kick up their heels and celebrate like that. But they also are not smart, like some of you also have other kinds of dogs that can find their way home. Or horses do this, cattle do this. Sheep don't do this. Sheep just wander off and get lost. So you've seen those pictures of the shepherd carrying the lamb on his shoulders back home. You know why he has to do that? Because even going to get a sheep, it is hard to gather sheep. You can't put on like a leash and just walk the sheep home. Right? You have to throw the, you have to pull the sheep out of the bushes, throw it to the ground, subdue it, and then put it on your shoulders to get it home. That's, it's not a sentimental picture. It's a picture of stubbornness and foolishness. Sheep are incredibly vulnerable, incredibly so. And when Jesus calls us sheep and himself the good shepherd, he's saying something that we don't want to hear about ourselves. He's saying you're dependent and you're weak and you're vulnerable. And man, but nobody wants to hear that, but isn't it the case? Isn't it the case in moments when we're most angry with God and frustrated with God, and God, I don't know what you're doing, that actually one of the things we're frustrated about is our vulnerability and the fact that we're not in control and the fact that we're weak and powerless to do anything about our circumstances? See, we're actually angry, not just about God, we're, we're angry at being sheep. We're angry that this is true. But see, Jesus, Rabbi Jesus doesn't just say something to be insulting. He says this, like, you're sheep. I want you to know what kind of a shepherd I am. He's saying something likewise about his aim to care for us. He knows us by name. Did you catch that? Jesus says this a couple of times in John 10. I know my sheep by name. We need him to call us by name. There's a, a, ch a children's book called Cecil the Lost Sheep. Anybody heard of this one? Cecil the Lost Sheep is kind of silly, but it's, 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 it makes the point. It's, it's based on the parable of the 99 and the 1. Jesus tells about the shepherd who leaves the flock in order to go get the lost sheep and bring it back. 
And so this is what happened. One day, Cecil the sheep wanders off, and the shepherd has to go get him. And so uh, the shepherd is counting off the sheep, and it's just like one, Michael, two, Annette, four, Lucy, going down the line, six, 96, Meredith, 97, other Meredith, 98, Abdul, 99, Emily. And then he realizes, Cecil, where is Cecil? Cecil is missing. And he goes and calls Cecil. Cecil calls him by name. And, and you know, y'all are mostly adults in this room, and you can be like, yeah, okay, yeah, I know, Jesus calls his sheep by name. But I think you need to hear this. Jesus calls you by name. Jesus calls you by name. He knows you. He designed you. He knows more about you than your mama ever did. And he loves and cherishes you. He loves and cherishes you. You know, each week in our service, we make you get up out of your seat if you're going to come take communion. And we, we instruct those who are serving communion. I hope that they do this. And they don't always do this, but I hope this more and more is a practice of our church, that when people come forward, that if someone's serving you communion, they say your name if they know it. Like, John, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Sarah, this is the blood of Christ poured out for you. And why do we do that? Because you need to know that Jesus calls you by name. You need to know this. And this is really important. Here's why this is important. You are not a sheep because you've been born. You're not a sheep because you go to church. You're not a sheep because you know a lot of things about God. You're not a sheep because you know the Bible. You're not a sheep because you grew up around things of God. You're a sheep because God calls you by name. Because he knows you and loves you. He calls you by name. That's what makes you part of his fold. He calls you. He knows you. Not, and, you know, his call on your life is what is the ultimate value. You are a sheep because God calls you. Third, it's a statement not only of our vulnerability and his care, but also of our value. You've probably heard, maybe have heard other pastors or me talk about this passage before. Yeah, sheep are dumb. Yeah, sheep are weak. But I want you to hear this. Sheep are also incredibly valuable. Think of like Bedouin tribes keeping herds of sheep. Why do they do that? Because they use every part of the sheep, right? Sheep have wool, which are valuable for clothing. They give milk, which is great for cheese and great for sustenance. They, they, they make more sheep and they, make, they become meat. Like all these things, sheep are incredibly valuable to the Bedouin community. The sheep is a very valuable livestock. And, and this is what I want, to, want you to hear. In calling us sheep, Jesus is saying, I find you so valuable. You are the apple of my eye. I love you. And maybe you need to hear this over and over. Yeah, we're a church that believes in sin. Okay, we talk about sin. We're sinners, all that. All that. We talk about total depravity. But we, do we hear enough? Jesus loves you. You are so very valuable to him. He prizes you. And he does so, even in this passage, showing us not only that we have valuable that we're valuable, it's not just a statement of our value, it's also a statement of his price, of his price for us. See, the, the rabbi, the good shepherd, actually did do what Ecclesiastes said. He actually did become a beast. He actually put on the limitations of human flesh. 
and he died. And he, he died like a beast. In Isaiah 53, centuries before the coming of Jesus, Isaiah writes this about Jesus. He says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He, he was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearer is silent, so did he did not open his mouth. See, John 10 tells us this is exactly who Jesus is. He came to lay down his life like a beast. He came to die for us. Remember my Calvin and Hobbes illustration? You know that the only way a 2D comic figure is going to understand is if a 3D person comes into the 2D. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did. Jesus, who was from all eternity without limit, was born. Jesus, who was a spirit everywhere at the same time, became human flesh. Jesus, who had no ending, has no ending, dies. Jesus does so in becoming a beast for us, becoming a sheep. In Revelation, the end of the Bible, we, read, we see this picture of what's going on right now in heaven. And what's happening right now are there people from every tribe, language, and nation and tongue gathered in the middle of a giant room worshiping what? What are they worshiping? A lamb. They're worshiping a lamb who looks as if it was slain. See, Jesus comes like into Calvin and Hobbes' world, into the 2D world, to become a sheep. The shepherd who becomes a sheep. And it's a one-to-one. It's a one-to-one exchange. You, your life, paid for by him. That's, that's how valuable. One life purchased by another. And this is, this is why it is so comforting. It's hard to be a sheep. But this is why it's also so good to be a sheep. It's so good to be a sheep because faith in the final analysis is trusting someone you know even when you don't always know what he's up to. You know, it's, it's trusting. It's looking at the foot of the cross and saying, that is a picture for me of suffering and pain. And that suffering and pain had the greatest outcome for my life. And therefore, I can look at the suffering and pain in my life that doesn't make sense. And two plus two equals five. And I don't know why that person was removed. And I don't know why justice isn't happening. And I don't know why things aren't working out for me. But God is at work even in suffering and pain. I can trust him. He is a shepherd and he is a sheep. And it can take me, our sufferings take us into deeper realms of God's character, enlarging our vision of him. One last thing I want to say to you um, one last thing that Jesus promises here in verse 28 is that nothing, nothing, nothing can remove you from his hand, from his pierced hand. The shepherd who is a sheep, nothing can take you from him. Not your unbelief, not your fears, not your doubts, not your sins this week, not all the ways that you're rebellious against him, nothing can remove you from his hand. He says that those who are in the Father's hand, nothing can take them away. And look, this is what I want to say to you today. Look, it is not, has nothing to do with the strength of your faith. Your salvation has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with the strength of your faith. It's the one who holds you. And he is faithful and strong to the end.
Yes, it is so hard to be a sheep. And it is so good to be a sheep. Would you join me in prayer? Father, come this morning in all kinds of places, and yet in the ways that most matter, we're exactly the same. Lord, we are vulnerable, and we're in need. We don't understand what you're up to. Father, I pray for those whom you have called by name, that this morning they would hear again your voice, your affection on them, your love for them, that nothing can take you from them or them from you. Father, I pray for those who've never trusted in you this morning, who are just been washed over with tides of doubt and fear and cynicism. Lord, I pray, Father, that they would find in you the meaning maker and the great shepherd and the great sheep. Lord, we praise you and give thanks for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.